So, what's slow-killing our marriages? What's slow-killing our marriage? I mean, there's so many things that come to my mind. I wonder what comes to your mind. If, if, um, if we had the time, I would love to do a back-and-forth, a little um, question and response here to get your input. But I wonder what things have come to your mind about what's slow-killing our marriage. And I bet it's not uh, too far from something like hyperactivity in my home. We're raising kids literally in our minivan. That's where we eat, sleep, and uh, do all family gatherings, right in the minivan, right in the SUV. Some people might say what's slow-killing our marriages is digital distractions, materialism, Jerky men, gold-digging wife, uh, uh, women. What's killing our marriages? Rage, politics, or poverty, sexual deviancy, or promiscuity. The list goes on and on. But under the surface, there's a source, and it's a biblical source, and I wanted to spring it on you today, and it is an old problem of marriage called self-centeredness. Tim Keller writes extensively about this in the book, The Meaning of Marriage, and he says, self-centeredness is the cancer that's slowly killing our marriages. Self-centeredness, centering ourselves. And it's the main barrier to the development of a servant's heart in marriage. The radical, self-centered sinfulness of the human heart is in the way of a thriving biblical marriage. Does that seem clear? Does that seem clear? Oh, oh, this is important too. Not your spouse's, yours. Right? Not because some of you are nodding way too intensely, which I was like, okay, you you're thinking it's my spouse. But it's our own sinful heart. And we're gonna dissect this a little bit because this is the part I wanted to say, we don't have time for this, but this is the part where I think I have to say we have to inspect this a little bit. We have to inspect this a little bit. How serious is this relationship cancer? How serious. It is stage four. This old problem of self-centeredness is wreaking havoc on relationships in the home. It is an ever-present enemy in the marriage dynamic. It is the cancer in the center of the marriage, and when it begins, which is at the point in which the couple says their vows... It has to be dealt with. Our own self-centered heart has to be dealt with. Repeatedly, repeatedly, Paul the Apostle writes in all his letters, Galatians, Ephesians, and so on, he, he repeatedly shows that love is the very opposite of self-seeking, which is literally pursuing one's own welfare before those of others. And there's, this, there's a trend in weddings, and I think the trend is probably predates any wedding that I've ever done, but there's a trend um, where there's a Scripture passage that is read or displayed from 1 Corinthians chapter, which one? 13. What chapter is that? The love chapter. Changes your life if you read that in, in light of that being a description of Jesus, by the way. But in this love chapter, there's a segment that's often read in marriage, and, and every time I hear it, do you remember in Princess Bride that character, um, um, 
why do I do this? Why do I try to remember things spontaneously? Inconceivable. I do not believe that that word means what you think it means. I do not believe that couples, when they have the, the, the classic wedding phrase read or passage read, I do not believe it means what they think it means. And I'm just going to give you a, a little example of what I'm talking about. Um, and I always imagine that the bride picked it out, but she picked it out to read it out loud so the groom can hear it. So he's like, oh, she's like helping me help her a little bit with love. So here's Paul's description to the church at Corinth. Here's what he says. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy, right? It doesn't want for itself. Listen to how much selfishness is in this. It does not boast about itself. It is not proud over its own glory, its own accomplishments. It is not rude, right, which would be impatient and harsh. It is not, everybody say it with me, self-seeking. It's not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Now, do you know why I already know that this passage is just like a filler in a wedding ceremony? Because I believe that we, not just couples that are getting married, but we collectively instantly dismiss this the way that we fly the marriage plane the rest of our life. Instantly, we are on to seeking for ourselves and rudeness and boasting and pride and envy and taking for ourselves and manipulating, using and abusing and twisting and distorting everything to be about my advancement and my elevation. Maybe not for you in obvious overt ways, but for most of us in subtle ways. And yet Paul is saying, love is embodied by Jesus, here's what it looks like. It is not self-seeking. There's a researcher named Dana Shapiro. Dana Shapiro interviewed divorced couples, and she tried to get to the source, the bottom, of why couples had divorced. And she saw a pattern, and she identified the pattern this way. She said, each spouse's self-centeredness asserted itself, as it always will, and in response, this, the other spouse's self-serving, uh, um, um, self self-centeredness came raging to the surface over and over and over again. Um, each spouse's self-centeredness asserted itself, and in response, the other spouse became more impatient, more resentful, more harsh, more cold, and more distant. So, self-centeredness was, got a response, and what was the response? Self-centeredness. It just looked a whole bunch of different ways. In other words, they responded to the self-centeredness of their partner with their own self-centeredness. And the researcher said this is why eventually couples' marriages dissolved, collapsed, and were dismantled. So, why is that? Why is that? It's because self-centeredness by its very character, makes you blind to your own self-centeredness. While being hypersensitive, offended, and angered by the other person's self-centeredness, right? So self-centeredness is blinding you to your own selfishness. But you can tune in and see, this happens a lot too. If you say to somebody, 
um, of course, you would never say this, but if somebody were to list the deficiencies of their spouse, let's say it's in their Apple Notes app, can you picture the list of deficiencies of their spouse? And then just say with a follow-up question, just make a list of yours. It's imbalanced, like grossly overshot, right? It's like shockingly short when you think, what are my deficiencies? Well, there's a few of them, but my mom doesn't think those are deficiencies. My grandmother certainly doesn't think those are deficiencies, so maybe I'll leave them off. I just have a couple. Well, show me your spouse's list. It's long. And so what we're seeing here is researchers say that self-centeredness blinds us to our own self-centeredness but makes us hyper in tune with someone else's. You follow me there? See how that works? So there are two self-centered focuses that slow poison our marriages. And here's how it works. Basically, it starts with my individual happiness and my focus on my individual woundedness. Happiness and woundedness. So people that want to be happy, self-centered. People who feel like they've been wounded, self-centered. Both of them become a slow cancer that erodes a marriage from the inside out. And the Western me marriage culture propagates this, this myth. This is, this is my opinion here. My opinion is that our culture massages a me marriage mentality that's hard to escape, which means when we approach the marriage relationship, we approach it like this. I'm getting married to enhance my happiness. I remember if I, if I were to go back to 1993 when I got married, I think I got married because it was the next normal cultural step in my dating relationship. I don't know that I knew why I was getting married other than, um, well, I don't know exactly why or, or what the design for marriage was, but I knew that I could see myself living with and loving Raquel forever, and I wanted to give it a whirl, give it a try. But no doubt in my mind that I had believed that somehow it was going to enhance my happiness. Happiness requires, in order to be happy in our culture, the be marriage culture, in order to be happy, we have to be adding and subtracting things in our life that either enhance or restrict our happiness, right? We add things that enhance our happiness, and we restrict out of our lives things that add to our unhappiness. And if it happens to be our marriage, we say, well... It was making me unhappy. And I often think to myself, you imagine if we use that principle with our kids? I mean, the phase of life that they're making us unhappy, and we're like, we're going to have to go a different direction here and let you go. I mean, this is not working out. Your mom and I, you're making us miserable. We're so unhappy with your rebellious, nonsensical behavior. Sure, you're four. Maybe when you're five, you'll be a little bit more mature. But isn't it, it's wild, right? We don't consider that an option with our kids. You're making me unhappy. We are um, interviewing candidates (laughs) to take you away. But then marriage brings us unhappiness, and I don't mean to, I hope I'm not sounding condemning. I don't mean to condemn. It's just like it concerns me that our culture is feeding us the DNA for being marriage instead of us seeing ourselves as a contrast community saying, that's not how we're married. That's not how it works in my house. I belong to Jesus. I am in a new family as a new human with a new heart. I'm doing it different. I'm not doing it this way. Marriage is not something that God put together to help us feel better feelings. It comes with joy in the long run 
but it doesn't always come with instant happiness. In fact, it often brings the greatest sources of pain, but it's painful because God uses it as a tool to pry us free from the depth of selfishness that will ruin our lives. And he does so on purpose. And we come to one another in marriage with these wounds in our background too that makes it so much more difficult to be married. And we bring these wounds into our relationship and when the inevitable conflict occurs in our relationship, these painful memories come up and they sabotage our ability to do the normal day-to-day work of confessing and repenting and asking for forgiveness and demonstrating grace. Why? Because we're so wounded, our entire equilibrium to just function normally has been sabotaged. And in that woundedness, we are uh, um, unable to extend grace, unable to offer forgiveness. All of that so crucial to making progress in our marriage. Woundedness is just basically compounded self-doubt and guilt, compounded resentment and disillusionment. Woundedness also forces us to live self-absorbed. By the way, someone who has an inferiority complex is just as self-absorbed as somebody who has a superiority complex. In other words, constantly hyper-focused on how people perceive me, either negatively or positively. Also, it means it's hard to see self... um, It's hard to see in others, of course. We're always the last to see self-absorption in ourselves. Why is that? Because our hurts, because our wounds make our self-centeredness even more untraceable. If you point out selfish behavior to somebody who has been wounded, they may think or say something like, well, you know what, that may be so, but you don't know what it's like. You don't know how it feels to be in the situation or to be in the position that I'm in. You don't know how that feels. In other words, their wounds justify their selfish behavior. It's a, it's a massive challenge. So how does our modern culture try to fix this? Here's what we do. Our modern culture says, this is how you help somebody who is living to be happy or, or living in their woundedness. You, they just need a heavy dose of self-esteem. They just have to be kind of cheered on and blindly uh, um, uh, um, um, kind of sprinkled with a brand new level of self-esteem. If people are self-absorbed and messed up, it's argued it's only because they don't have enough self-esteem. So then we have to uh, just tell them things like, listen, it's, you need to take better care of yourself. You need to learn to love yourself. You need to live for yourself. Forget about everybody else. Do what makes you happy, especially if it means abandoning the marriage. Just do what makes you happy. So how does that work? We help a self-absorbed human by authorizing and applauding more self-absorption, right? More self-centeredness. Well, our Christian approach is different. With the Christian worldview, we approach this completely different. And when we analyze the situation, we believe that as badly as a wounded person may be, it wasn't the wound that caused self-centeredness. It just agitated it. It just stirred it up. It just created the smoke and the flames that they choke on. That self-centeredness was already there and the woundedness has just stirred it up and intensified it. Their mistreatment fanned the fire. 
Therefore, if you only urge people to look out for number one, you're setting them up for future heartache in every other relationship in their life. And of course, wounded people need TLC, right? They need tender, loving care. They need compassion. They need affirmation and patience. Just that It's just that this is not the power that they need. There's a new power for contrasting marriage. This new power is what we need. It's a new power for confronting self-centeredness, not stoking the fire, not fanning the flame of self-centeredness. The Christian faith reveals that human beings were made in God's image. So we're made in God's image, and that's important because what that means is we're created to worship, we're created to live for God's glory, we are created specifically to elevate God and His reputation not our own. Do we all agree on that? That's why we're created. That's why we belong to God. And our hearts were renewed to serve God and to serve other people. That means, paradoxically, that if we try to put our own happiness ahead of obedience to God, we violate our own nature. It means that we become ultimately miserable because we're not transformed that way anymore. Today's culture of me marriage finds this very notion of submitting to other people as oppressive, right? They say, ew, submit, that's so oppressive. But it's because they don't look deeply enough at the Christian teaching about the nature of what reality is. And the principle that Paul applies here to marriage is to seek to submissively serve one another rather than to be happy, and then you will find new and deeper happiness, That word submit that is used in the Scripture is a military word, and the word means that um, you give control over to someone else. That's what the word submit means in the Scripture. Why would you do that? Because when you join the military, in order to become a part of the whole, you have to submit control over your own schedule. You have to submit control over uh, when you can take a holiday, what time showering is, uh, what time that you're going to eat. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? And you even turn control over to the military or to your commanding officer when you're going to eat. To be a part of the whole or to become a part of a family, you surrender your control and your independence, and you must give up the right to make decisions unilaterally. This is the kind of submitting that happens in a marriage. To make the whole work, I give up on my um, exclusive preferences, will. And so Paul says that this ability to deny our own rights this ability to serve uh, someone else for the, to put the good of the whole over my own self is not instinctive, right? It doesn't happen naturally. This isn't something that we say, you look through the book on how to do it and say, yeah, I already do that naturally, instinctively, normally. I don't have to think about it. It's second nature. Instead, it's unnatural. So the foundation of our marriage is unnatural. This sounds like it's impossible, but it's not impossible. We take the Bible seriously. We look at the Christian worldview. We make a commitment to give ourselves up the way that the Scriptures describe. We stop making excuses for our selfishness. We begin to root it out as it's revealed to us, as we start to see it by the Spirit's revealing it to us, by our spouse helping us to see it as an instrument of grace. And we do that regardless of what our spouse is doing. And by the way, if the two spouses do that, we have the prospects for a beautiful lifelong marriage, 
fruitful marriage, deeply connected marriage. So where does the power to do this come from? The power to do this, the power for our contrasting marriage is a self-sacrificing love of Jesus. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from ourselves. The Spirit of God helps to illuminate the power of God through the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. That's not just theologically sound. That's actually logical and practical, and it's helpful to us. What do I mean? Well, where then does my humble happiness come from? Here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, listen to what Paul says. Where does my happiness come from? Where does my humble happiness come from? Where does the power to be uh, humble come from? Live a life filled with love, following the example of Jesus, of Christ. He loved us, and he offered himself as a sacrifice to us, for us, a pleasing aroma to God. What does that mean? Well, here it is, the gospel This is so important. The gospel, when it's brought home in our hearts by the Spirit, when the gospel brings, when when the Spirit of God brings the gospel home in our hearts, the gospel can make us so happy that it's happy enough for us to be humble. So fulfilling, so satisfying, and so gratifying that we don't need to take from anybody else. We don't need to distort someone or something else to get it. The Spirit's work of making the gospel real to the heart, this is what it does. It weakens the self-centeredness in the soul. Let me say that again. The Spirit's work of making the gospel real to the heart, not to the mind only, but deep inside to the heart, it weakens self-centeredness in the soul. See, I need the work outside of myself by the Spirit to have the power to make this work. It can't be done by grin and bear it, do the willpower, read more books. It's a work of God's Spirit that does this. It's impossible for us to make any major headway against self-centeredness and to move into a posture of servanthood and humility without the Spirit's help, without a supernatural intervention. So, This is basically love economics, right? It's like generosity. In order to be generous with your money, there has to be deposits of money in the bank. We have to make deposits in order to make withdrawals. And this is is also very much the same. You can only afford to be generous if you actually have some money in the bank. So what does that mean? In the same way, if your only source of love and meaning is your spouse... When you're not getting the love and meaning that you need from them, it's not just grief, it's a a psychological crisis. But if you know something of the work of the Spirit in your life, if you know, and if you know, if you have enough love in the bank of your heart, then you can be generous to your spouse. You can... Do that even when you're not getting much in return because this love of Jesus deposit is overflowing and you are giving out of that overflowing, self-sacrificing life of, Jesus, life of love of Jesus who is meeting all our needs, all our needs being met in Christ Jesus and now we have an abundance to give and if we don't get something back, if we don't get what we want or think we need or are demanding, it doesn't send us into a crisis, it doesn't cause us to panic because our needs are being essentially primarily met through the loving care of Jesus. And to have a marriage 
that um, thrives requires a spirit-created ability to serve, to take yourself out of the center, to put the needs of others in the place. So the Christian gospel principles that stir in the most spirit-generated selfishness, selflessness, one of them is the definition of humility that goes like this. I think it was C.S. Lewis or, or, or says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. That's self-loathing. It um, isn't thinking more of yourself. It's actually thinking of yourself less. You're just not on your mind as much. That's what humility is. It's not self-deprecating or self-loathing. It is just not coming to mind. You don't come to your own mind as often. And it means that take your mind off of yourself and you realize that there is a gospel principle at work. The gospel principle that needs to be at work is this. In Jesus, your needs are being met so that you don't look to your spouse as your savior. You don't look to your spouse as your source. You may have discovered, if you're married, that your spouse is a what's the word for it, is an inadequate Savior, is insufficient, incapable. Um, They're not being less than a Savior on purpose. They were never designed or intended to be anybody's Savior. They are not um, an inadequate source. They weren't designed to be your source. Jesus meets all our needs So you can now live from meeting someone else's needs. I find what I need in Jesus. It's the same power that Paul expressed to the Corinthian church. He said, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Jesus died for us, fills our needs, meets every need that we could possibly uh, have on the inner soul level so that we don't have to live for ourselves, but we get to live for him. So as a new human living in unity with a new family that's been brought together by Jesus, you're no longer living for yourself. There's a more secular approach to marriage which says you mustn't let your spouse trample over you, which, um, of course, we all completely as Christians embrace and support the idea that nobody should allow themselves to be uh, used and abused. We, we, we completely um, um, condemn using and abusing a spouse, a child, a human being, right? But there's a secular approach to this that says the real problem is that any human being would allow themselves to be trampled on that your own individual self-realization is the goal, and that you get married so that your spouse can help you realize the best version of yourself. And if they're not helping you realize that version of yourself, if they're holding you back in any way to what you envision yourself to be, you can, in fact, you should just get rid of them because they're holding you back. They're holding you back from self-actualization because in marriage, you've got to build yourself up. And if your spouse won't if your spouse won't help you, you got to get out. Right? That's one of the approaches that would work that would be advised. 
but instead that fans the flame of self-centeredness. So why would I ever submit to somebody? Why would I ever submit to my spouse? They don't even deserve it. Well, that's not why we're doing it. We're not submitting to one another because the other person deserves it, right? Here's, what, here's how he finishes this idea. Instead, we submit to, submit to one another out of, say the word with me, reverence for who? For Christ. Not res- we're not doing it because of our respect for our spouse. We're not doing it because uh, of these romantic impulses that we have for our wife or our husband. Instead, I'm not adoring my spouse's worthiness. I'm adoring and I'm reflecting Jesus. I am adoring and revering Jesus. This is only about responding uh, um, and overflowing with reverence to the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. Do you see what the motive is? So I don't, get to, I don't have to look at my spouse and say, if they deserved it, I would submit. If they were more uh, respectable, I would submit. If I felt more romantic impulses, I would submit. Instead, we're not doing it for those reasons. We're doing it because somebody did that for us selflessly, and it cost him his life full of dark shame and pain. And he does it to empower us. So where could you start? Where could you start? Real quick. Seek humility. That's where we start, right? Full of Jesus' love and care for me. And if I'm full of Jesus' love and care for me, I can humbly pursue identifying selflessness in my life. Just identifying with my self, selfishness, self-centeredness is a problem in my marriage. It's a problem in my home. We could see it as a fundamental problem and then attack it. We're the only ones who have complete access to our own self-centeredness. Secondly, seek forgiveness. Isn't it true our selfishness bruises people? Someone else's selfishness bruised you, perhaps? Left you wounded? It breaks people? injures people dramatically and deeply, especially your spouse. And that's why we start with seeking forgiveness. We confess, we say it, we own it. And we're not, by the way, when we confess these things, we're not saying, listen, I have to admit something to you. I am the dark devil Satan of the universe, right? All we're saying is my heart is injured and self-centered and it's done damage, I see it, I own it, I recognize it. It works for spouses, it works for parents, it works from children to their parents, it works to coworkers and neighbors. It's amazing the healing that starts to happen after somebody says, I was wrong, please forgive me. And then thirdly, seek help. Seek help. If you take your, how many of you, in the last two years, have taken your car to a repair shop. Would you raise your hand? You taken your car to a repair shop? Okay, we're making progress here. How many of you here have ever gone to see the doctor within the past two years? Anybody gone to see the doctor? Okay, you know what that means? We are comfortable with the idea that sometimes it takes an expert to repair the stuff that belongs to us. Sometimes it takes an expert. And I take my car to a repair shop, and when I kind of like I'm inherently admitting I'm not an expert on this. When I go see the doctor, I'm admitting my body, I'm, I'm, I'm with my body every day. My body never leaves my sight, but I'm not an expert on it. 
Can I ask you to consider something that you may never have considered before? Get help for your marriage. If you are married, you can get help. If you are pre-married, you're not yet married, but you want to be married, maybe you're in a, 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 a relationship with somebody, maybe, listen, maybe you have been married and you know a lot about the kind of woundedness that I'm talking about. Maybe you've been married a long time and you know a lot about the woundedness I've been talking about. There are people specifically trained to help you start to see it more clearly and start to live in the healing that God provides through forgiveness and joy and the life-saving, rescuing power and love of Jesus. Your marriage needs an expert. Your marriage needs a second opinion. Oh, wait, no, that would be your spouse. A third opinion. Your marriage needs a third opinion. Would you join me in praying? Now, listen, do you remember the disclaimer? Some of you are like, no, I don't. It was so long ago. I literally don't remember the disclaimer. But I don't want to miss, because it's an extended amount of information, I don't want to miss the possibility that God wants this truth to provide transformation. Okay? It's not just, this is not just information. It's transformational. And so, while we're singing, this is what I'm praying. I'm praying that God starts to stir your heart. For what? What is God going to stir my heart with? Humility, selflessness, um, seeking forgiveness, seeking help. Let's pray. Father, today we approach you and we're grateful for all these life-changing Principles and truths that help us get our mind off ourselves, our eyes off ourselves, our heart off ourselves. And I pray for our North Central Church family, people that are longtime givers, investors, longtime family members, those who are relatively new. I pray for all of us. I'm thinking and praying for those who are tuned in through our live stream. It's easy to think about the distresses in our marriages and think it's too far gone, it's too out of whack, it's too far off the edge, there's no recovery, no return, no, uh, no possible hope. But God, it is so much distorted to think that way and believe that way because you are the designer of marriage, you are the great hope for healing. And I pray today, God, that you would start by bringing us back to Jesus. Oh, by your Spirit, would you help our eyes to retreat from focusing in on ourselves, our own happiness, and our own woundedness. And would you help us to get back to seeing you and all the help and hope and joy that is found in Jesus. And would you stir our affections for Jesus, that we trust and treasure him. And then by your Spirit, would all of the beauty of Jesus start to stir us, overflowing with the kind of love we need to meet the needs of the people that we have pledged our life to. Help wives to release control. Help husbands to give up control of their life. 
Just pray that you would do it. For those who are preparing to get marriage, God, help them to shape a picture, your picture of what it looks like. For those that are in a marriage, help them to get a clearer picture of what it looks like. For those who have been married, help them, God, reconcile the way that uh, all the ways in which you're at work healing them from that marriage. We trust you. Thank you for doing it. We look forward to responding to your work in us in Jesus' name.